Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Luke. I want to take a um, one-week break from our Philippians series because uh, as we were going through all this this week, the Lord um, put this text on my heart, and I believe it speaks exactly to our lives and exactly to our present situation as a church. Uh, In Luke chapter 5, we're introduced to Peter, James, and John, the, the first disciples that Jesus calls, and they really become the big three. They're the ones that are there at the key events. They're the ones that Jesus leans on and and turns to. Um, They're the ones that that really are at the forefront of kind of everything that happens. And in in Luke chapter 5, we're first introduced to them. We we first understand who they are. And um, while this passage kind of seems like a real real simple account of Jesus calling them and this miracle of the fish and and it just kind of seems real straightforward. There are a lot of layers here of application for our lives. And the more I've studied through this text uh, this week and, and kind of thought through it, the more meaningful it's become. And I've become very excited even in kind of the, the bittersweet um, aspect of this week. I've been very excited about the potential of what the Lord can do. And the Bible says that we walk by faith and not by sight. We walk by faith and not by sight, but how many know that sight holds a very powerful appeal? That, that it really keeps grinding at us and really keeps saying, what about this and what about this? And, and as it uh, appeals to our hearts and minds, it, it throws around a lot of words like reasonable and common sense. And then as it's doing that, it mocks us, it mocks our faith, it mocks our insecurity because it's trying to dissuade us from trusting in the Lord. Now, of course, we know that, that um, you know, sight isn't a real thing. It's not tangible. And yet we know that the enemy uses this vehicle. He uses our propensity for the tangible to try to move us away from trusting in the Lord. And, and that temptation is is constant. So even if we're strong on the Lord and the power of his might and we put on the whole armor of God, he keeps shooting fiery darts at us that keep hitting the metal. And, and, and if we're equipped and we're covered and we're prepared and we've done uh, the, the, the things that God calls us to do to be soldiers of Christ and to put on the armor of God, the enemy is going to keep being persistent, because his goal is to get us to surrender to doubt. Now, as we've said hundreds of times, the crucible of our lives, the, the proving ground of our, of our Christianity is always whether or not we're going to trust in the Lord. That's the bottom line for everything. Do we trust or do we not trust? And we see, even as Jesus calls Peter, James, and John, right at the outset, that, that he is saying on this first day, I'm going to test your faith. See, they don't really know him. They're not aware necessarily of who he is. They might have heard about him, but there's no relationship there yet. And, and, and this is kind of the first time that there's really a strong interaction. There's another thing in chapter 4 with Peter, but, but this is really the first time they're getting to know him. They have no clue what he's calling them to. They have no clue that as they're parking their boat uh, in, in, on the Sea of Galilee that, that in a couple minutes he's going to call them to follow him and their lives are going to completely change. They have no idea. 
And yet right at the outset, Jesus doesn't, doesn't work his way into their lives. He doesn't kind of, kind of slowly and gently guide them into an understanding of, of what it's going to mean. He goes right to it. He gets right to it, and he says, Peter, James, and John, essentially, bottom line of this text is, are you going to trust me? Because that's what's most important to the Lord. Now, many times I think we get frustrated, at least I know sometimes I do, that, that this is the continual message, that God is constantly testing and refining our faith. And, and, and I think if we're going to be really honest and blunt with ourselves this morning, sometimes we get a little bit annoyed, a little, little rub under the saddle, like, I've got to trust you again? Like, I'm trusting you. I've trusted you with my life. I believe in you. I've given my life to you. And, and, I'm, and you've taken me through trials, and I'm trusting you again. But, but when God comes back and says, I want you to trust now to a new level, I think sometimes we get a little like, ah, oh, come on. I get the message already. And yet James, the one who's in the first person account here, will later write in James chapter 1, don't despise that. Don't get resentful. Don't get irritated. Don't get frustrated in your heart because the Lord keeps working to teach you a deeper and deeper faith. He says you've got to let faith have its work and you've got to have patience, which I love. Patience is the atmosphere in which faith kind of thrives and grows. It's the, it's the greenhouse of our faith. So when we have patience, it, it starts to grow our faith and we start to trust and we have to push down our self-sufficiency and God says, now I'm going to foster greater and greater faith. And James, who's here, says, let it have its perfect work so you may become complete. See, ultimately, we have to make a decision. Not just for our lives, but for our everyday decision. We can be partial disciples. We can be inconsistent and kind of impotent, lacking in power and spiritual influence in our lives. We can be incomplete. We, we can just kind of be partial, part-time disciples. Or we can fulfill the calling that God's given us. And we can fulfill the capability that the Spirit of God has given us to be holy and complete in Him. And since the Holy Spirit's given us everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness, then we have to trust in the promise and provision of God, and we have to move forward, not falling back into self-sufficiency, but we need to ask the Lord, keep me focused on your purpose. Because I don't know about you, it's real easy to get distracted. I've been saved 41 years in June. I still get distracted away from my faith. I still get places where I get down and discouraged and say, well, Lord, I don't understand, and, and what are you doing? But God keeps pressing this message. And that's why this passage, I believe, is, is such an outstanding resource for us this morning. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, because there's application here that fits right into our lives. Jesus, right as he calls the disciples, is... He's imprinting the definition of faith into their experience. He's giving them an experience, an example, that they will never forget. Okay, this is a familiar passage, but read it like it's the first time. Luke chapter 5. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. 
And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. Just to break here, the Sea of Galilee is a natural amphitheater. So it's, it lies uh, as kind of a, a nice, beautiful lake. And then all around it are kind of uh, just kind of soft hills that, that come up from the water. So when you stand at the bottom right by the water, you can be up on the hill and hear somebody talking five, six, seven, eight hundred yards away because of the amphitheater effect. So Jesus, as the crowds are, are gathered around him and they're pressing against him, goes out in the boat, and as he speaks, they're able to hear him without any microphone. Okay, so just, just so you have a little picture of that. Go back to verse 4. When he finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered him and said, Master, we've worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so were with James and John, sons of Zebedee, were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear. From now on you will be catching men. And when they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Now, this is not the first time that Jesus had met Peter. If you go back just a couple paragraphs into chapter 4, we see that Peter, uh, Jesus had been at Peter's mother-in-law's house and had healed her of a very severe fever. But this is really the first time that, that there is a, a relationship being built with Peter and now with James and John. And Jesus, at this point, even though they don't know it yet, is calling them to a life decision. So, so now the assessment of faith, now who they are as people, now what they're going to believe has gotten very personal. Because Jesus asked Peter and James and John to do something inconvenient and, and seemingly unnecessary and kind of futile. And, and, and almost, if we really want to get into the emotion of it, Almost exasperating. You just got in. You just parked the boats. You're cleaning your nets. Now, I want to go back out in your boats. Now, from a, from a logical crowd standpoint, that made sense. Because the crowd was pressing in so tight that Jesus probably had his feet in the water. And, and, and they're kind of pressing in. You know, if you've ever been in a crowd like that, if you're claustrophobic, that's like your worst nightmare. You'd want to start swimming at that point. So, so Jesus looks over, he sees the boats, and he says, you know what, if I go out in the boats, then the people can't get to me. I can teach, they'll hear me, everything will be great. So he says to Peter, I'm going out in your boat. But they've been out all night, and they're tired, and they're personally frustrated because they've caught nothing. For, for people that make a living out of catching fish, that's going to be frustrating because they've come in, they've worked all night, they've caught nothing, they're going to go home, and their wives are going to say, what did you catch? And they're going to say, we caught absolutely nothing, which will then stress out their family because they need food to be able to sell and food to be able to live on. 
And of course, it's going to be a little bit embarrassing as the other boats are coming in after fishing all night, and other people are pulling out fish, and they're coming up empty-handed. And you know, there's always one salty, crusty little guy who's probably mocking them. Hey, I didn't catch anything, right? And the other boats are going, yeah, nice catch, guys. I mean, there's little friendly competition. Put yourself in the scene here. But it was intentional that they didn't catch anything. It was not a coincidence. And now there's a tremendous lesson that the Lord wants to teach them and wants to change their life. He says, look, look back at the text. He says, we need to launch the boats out. Now that means more of their personal time. It means that they're going to have to stop cleaning up. It means they're going to have to sacrifice a little bit to take the boats back out which was more than a minor inconvenience because at this point they're, they're, they've been f- uh, fishing all night, they're tired, they're weary, and, and they want to get the nets clean and go home. So you say, well, why, did, why do they comply at this point? Well, Peter certainly had seen Jesus heal his mother-in-law, but he didn't have a lot of information to go on, and James and John hadn't really met him yet. They're obviously not caught up in the hype, They're not part of the crowd that's been pressing and following Jesus because they've been out fishing all night. They're obviously not terribly impressed. It hasn't changed their lives yet. And there's really no logical reason to comply other than as a favor. But but now they go out on the boat and it seems like everything's good, and Jesus is taught, and everybody's done, and the crown kind of dispersed, and they're thinking, all right, let's row back in, and we're done. And Jesus says, no, let's go out in the deep. So now what was a favor now has become an uncomfortable level of commitment. So why did they do it? I believe, and if you want to write some things down this morning, I believe there are two primary reasons why they obeyed. And I think these are the same two reasons that are foundational spiritual principles of our faith. These are why we're compelled to love the Lord and to follow Him with our lives. And they're very simple. The first one is that there's power in the presence of the Lord. Being in His presence changed lives just like it still does. Anytime we get in the presence of the Lord, listen now, there is power ready and available to be imparted onto our lives. When we gather in this room on Sunday morning, it's not just, hey, I'm with my friends and I'm at my church and I'm here to kind of sing a couple songs and listen to a message and just kind of do the thing. No, we're coming into the place of power. We're coming into the presence of the Lord and we need to prepare our hearts that way. And as we come in, God is ready to move. The Spirit of God is ready to move through this room and speak to our lives and encourage us and strengthen us and fill us with joy and give us a greater passion for the Lord and break our heart for the lost. All those things are ready and and available to us. But, and I'm not being critical, I'm just asking the question, do we come in and just kind of do the church thing and go home? How are our lives changed from the experience of being in God's presence? The reason we keep calling people to prayer is when you're in the presence of God in prayer, God's power is ready to move. He's ready to answer prayer. He's ready to encourage and strengthen. He's ready to meet you and give you power. So the presence of the Lord brings power. And any time people were in the presence of Jesus, there was a dynamic there. There was, a, there was an, a, a, a life there. No one could teach like him, yes. And no one could do miracles like him, yes. But, but it was more just about his presence. 
One of my favorite verses in Scripture is Acts 4.13, where Peter and John have been arrested. And the high priest confronts them and brings all the scribes and the Pharisees and their standing trial. And he, and the high priest questions them and he says, by what authority do you speak about this Jesus? Kind of mocking and condescending because 5,000 people have just come to Christ. And the high priest, I think, when you read the text in Acts 4, thinks that his presence and his authority and his intimidation will, will kind of shut them up and the whole thing will be quieted. But he's nervous. The high priest is nervous. You can tell in the text. And he kind of pulls up his robes and kind of looks down at them and points his finger and says, by what authority do you speak about Jesus? Hoping that they'll stop hoping that they'll cower because he's looking at these two men and he recognizes what they are from Luke 5. They're just fishermen. The text says they were unschooled. They didn't have the, the power and authority. I was at a seminary graduation yesterday and I walked into a room uh, just, you know, kind of dressed like this. I had a little suit on and, and I walk in and there are all these men and women in their robes with their hats, with the, with the sash, and I thought, I don't belong here. There's, 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 there's years and decades and, and hundreds of years of study and intelligence, and, and these people could, could argue apologetics till the cows come home. So, so you feel a little intimidated. They hoped that Peter and John would be intimidated. So they look at him and say, by what authority do you do that? And Peter, what a powerful man he was. He says, it's by the power of Jesus Christ, who you guys tried to kill, but he's alive. The grave's empty. You guys haven't found a body because he's alive. And let me tell you something, Mr. High Priest. Neither is there salvation in any other but Christ. And I love Acts 4.13 because it says that they looked at them and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. See, that's the secret. Once you've known his grace, once you've experienced that table for real, once you've abided in his presence, you are done with your past. You just want to be with Jesus. It's, it's unthinkable and illogical, and let me say this word, it's even repulsive to think about going back to the old life and living the way we used to when we were unregenerate and unsaved. That's, that's unthinkable, and it's illogical, and it's repulsive because now we've been in the presence of Jesus. Now we've experienced his grace and mercy. They had been with Jesus. The second spiritual principle here in Luke 5, is that Jesus gives us a purpose. It seems like a simple instruction, just take the boat out farther. But he says, go away from the land and go out into the deep. You know, the deep can be very intimidating. It's unknown. It's usually more volatile. It's farther away from what we would classify as safe. And it requires more of us, but Jesus tells Peter, look back at this, so important in verse 4, Jesus tells Peter, and it's no coincidence he's talking to Peter, because Peter's the most likely to be stubborn and to argue. He says, we're going out into the deep, look at it now, in order to get a 
catch. See, there's always a purpose to the Lord's leading, even if it almost seems negative. In all things, He is pushing us to fulfill the commission that He gave to us. Listen, if, if God hasn't led us apparently to buy this building, and I know that's really frustrating to some of you. For some of you, you're, you're happy about it. Many of you are just in the middle. You just want a permanent home. I want a permanent home too. But listen, if God isn't allowing us to buy this building, He's not now just allowing us to coast. He's not saying, well, you just kind of just kind of roll along. It's summer, and you just kind of do your thing. And No. All this means is now there's a fresh assignment for us with the exact same goal, to catch people who don't know Christ. To be fishers of men, to teach and disciple and minister to and love and show mercy to and to pray for and care for people who don't know the love of Christ but need to. And then once they know the love of Christ, to work together to build each other up. And if it's not here in this building, though we don't know how long that we're going to stay, then it will be based in another area. But listen, Racine's not huge. Southeast Wisconsin is not huge. We're still going to minister to people in this area, and we're going to minister to people in other areas, probably from a new location. So you say the $64,000 question, where? And the answer is the Lord hasn't made that clear to us yet. But that's the deep. If you look at the text, Jesus doesn't say, go to that spot right there and park your anchor because, look, see the churning in the water? You see that? That's a whole school of fish that if you go right to that spot, Peter, and you drop anchor and put the nets in, they're going to be fish. He says, go out into the deep. That's the extent of the instruction. And that's been impressed upon my heart this week. As I've thought about this, God's just saying, go out into the deep. Where are the fish? We don't know, but there are fish out there. And now they've got to drop clean nets. Think about this. They've just spent time cleaning the nets. They put them in the boat thinking we're just going to go out to let Jesus teach. They're done. They're ready to go back in. He says, no, go out in the deep. And they're thinking, "Uh uh-oh. And then they get out in the middle of the lake, and he says, drop those clean nets in. Drop them in. You don't know that there are fish there. You have to take Jesus at his word. Listen, we have prayed repeatedly. The leaders have prayed. We've called people to prayer meeting to pray. We've sought the Lord. We've asked the Lord for his leading. We've asked the Lord to provide the details. Now, apparently, there's a new location, and and he hasn't shown it to us yet, just as he didn't show the disciples yet, because he wanted them to go out into the deep. And you say, well, Paul, that's great, but it's frustrating. Why does the Lord work that way? And the simple answer is because he wants us to walk by faith and not by sight. If we walked by sight, we would easily forget that table. If we walked by sight, we would get self-sufficient. So the purpose of God's leading is always to drive us to three truths. And these are the three truths that he's impressing upon the disciples that are going to change their lives in the next couple minutes. And they're the three truths that fully apply to us. Write them down. Number one, God stretches our faith to prove his authority and his power. 
Why does God stretch our faith to prove his authority and his power? It's so we will be confident to trust in him. When God shows his power and God shows his authority and he moves our faith to a greater understanding of what he's done, the next time we have to trust, we won't say, well, I don't know if God can come through. We'll say, look at the evidence of what God's done. Look at his power, authority, and my experience. I can be confident to trust in him. Second, God stretches our faith to inspire us to follow him. What's the bottom line? He wants to know how committed we are. And faith and commitment go together. If you trust the Lord fervently, your commitment will be strong. If your trust wavers and is kind of shaky and uncertain, you're not going to give your life as a disciple the way we're called to live. So right at the outset, first disciples, here you go, Peter, James, and John. The first test for you is not, will you leave your boats? It's not, will you walk with me every day? It's not, will you take care of my needs? It's, will you trust me? God inspires our faith to show how committed we are. And the third truth is he stretches our faith to teach us to have spiritual eyes. Oh, I need spiritual eyes. How many need spiritual eyes this morning? I want spiritual eyes from the Lord. Because when God gives us spiritual eyes, it makes us courageous to trust him. Joshua, be strong and courageous. You've been through 40 years in the wilderness. You've seen it all. You've been faithful. You and Caleb, you've seen Moses, my servant, stop seeing with spiritual eyes and go back to self-sufficiency. And he whacked that rock twice, and I sent him up to Mount Nebo to die. He's not going to the promised land. You're leading them in. Now, Joshua, see with spiritual eyes. Go forward, press toward the prize for the high calling. Don't turn back. Doesn't matter how challenging the situation is. Doesn't matter uh, what the moment says. It doesn't matter what others say. It is just a matter of having your faith stretched. And listen, the only way to have our faith stretched this way is in the deep. Navy SEALs have something called deep water training where they not only test their endurance by having to do a bunch of procedures underwater, and I wish I had more time to develop this, they not only do procedures underwater, but they also do so in extremely cold water. And the purpose is to test their endurance and to see how much ability they have to adapt to a difficult circumstance without compromising their conviction. So they take them out into deep water, It's freezing cold. They drop them in and say, do all this stuff. And the test of their core value is in that moment. Now, the the Navy can't say to the SEALs, well, you know what? We're going to test how committed you are to to the assignment we're going to give you, which is going to be unthinkable. Navy SEALs are a different breed, right? They're, they're, They're so far beyond what I'll ever be. But the Navy doesn't take them out and say, you know what, let's just hang around around the shoreline. You guys can kind of play in the surf, ride a couple waves, because that will really test your commitment in in incredibly uh, critical situations. You'll be able to do it because you guys frolicked in the sand. Can you imagine that? They take them out in the deep, they drop them fully clothed with all their equipment, and they say, do this. And they better manage or they're going to die. 
That's the deep. And the spiritual parallel is exactly the same that God tests our spiritual character in the deep water. Now, let's say one more thing because I'm preaching too long. What's interesting here in verse 5 is Peter's reaction. Initially, he kind of mildly balks at, at the illogical nature of what's unseen and what they've proven isn't there all night, but he still obeys the word of the Lord despite the lack of evidence, and that's the vision of faith. Listen, the enemy's constantly trying to steal our faith. He's telling us that God's not worthy of, of, of our trust, but, but we need to resist that attempted robbery because that's all it is. It's an attempted robbery of our faith. And the best way to do that, the best way to offset that, is to look at God's faithful provision. God's, if Jesus says to Peter, launch out in the deep. And he says, drop the nets. And Peter says, look, let me just kind of speak from my heart here. We've been out all night. We're tired. We've caught nothing. And, and this doesn't really make sense. This is not the time of day to catch the fish. We know what we're doing. We're fishermen. Don't really want to do this. I mean, all these things, we've got to believe, are rolling around in Peter's head. And yet, look at what he says. He says, but I will do as you say. And what he didn't realize, but what he quickly saw, is that there were a whole bunch of fish to be caught. Now is the time, church, to get past what we want and to look at the harvest. Because I don't know about you, I got disturbed again this week looking at the news. Time is desperately, desperately short. And the harvest is out there. And the only commission that Jesus gave us is to go into the world and preach the gospel and make disciples. And as soon as we trust him for that, he will give us abundance. You know what's striking about this passage? This is not just some fish. This is not enough fish to meet the quota. This is not enough fish to take to market in Capernaum and sell enough and take some home. Look, we got fish for dinner. This is great. Everything's been good. It's been a great day. No, it's not that. It is so many fish that they can't even pull in the nets. The nets start to break, and they call the other boat, and they say, we need your help, because guess what? They didn't catch any fish. And the other boat comes over, and they haul in so many fish that they can't even contain it. Because, listen, this is how God works. God doesn't give partial blessings. He gives abundant blessings. When we trust him, he goes over and above I was thinking about this this week. Would we be willing, would we believe on the level to pray that the Lord would give us a building? You know, we've always joked that our first rent was 6500 a month when we were at the Marriott, and then we moved to the MC, and it was 4500 a month, uh, uh, I'm sorry, down at Jason's building down on Wisconsin, and then we moved here, and it's 2500 a month, so we've had a running joke for the last year, well, if it's gone from 65 to 45 to 25 well, the next stop is 500 and the Lord impressed upon my heart, well, I can actually take it down to zero. 
Now you say, well, that's kind of crazy, Paul. Cool idea. That'd be fun. Yeah, the Lord give us a bill. That'd be great, but come on. You, you think Peter, as Jesus said, drop the nets, was thinking, we're going to pull in so many fish here that I'm going to have to call the other boat because our nets are going to break. It's all in how we see things with spiritual eyes. James says later in James 1, to experience that, we've got to pray with nothing wavering. We've got to pray with a passion and a fervency and a desire and a belief that God can do anything when we get in the presence of his Holy Spirit. Listen, Thursday's National Day of Prayer. When we've called the church to prayer, maybe 25, 30 people show up. I'm asking you this Thursday, put aside your other responsibilities, miss a, miss a ball practice, miss something, and, and get together. Because imagine, I mean, just imagine if 100, 125, 150 of us got together and we sought the Lord. I mean, we really sought the Lord, not just, okay, we're going to go. I mean, we got on our faces and said, Lord, give us a building. Not demanding, just saying, Lord, you can do that. All things are possible. Listen, if we don't believe all things are possible with God, if we don't believe he can do anything, then we're really wasting our time. Might as well go home and have lunch. All things are possible with God. Can God provide a building? Absolutely. Could he give it to us for free? Absolutely. Will he? I don't know because we haven't asked him to yet. We haven't gotten together and prayed for that yet. He may not do it. But I know he says, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer. You say it's impossible, Paul. Come on. Come on. They had so many fish because of God's abundance. Our nets can be full with people getting saved. Our nets can be full with people growing in Christ and being discipled. Jesus will be the one to fill them but we got to pull them back in. Look at one final thought. You've listened really well. Look at Peter's response in verse 8. He had obeyed and trusted, and he's taking the boat out of the deep at the word of Christ, and now he pulls in those fish, and he's so humbled and so broken and so awed by Christ. The text says that amazement seized him and James and John because of the catch of the fish. But it wasn't the number of fish that caused him to fall on his face. It was the power and authority of Christ. And after the miracle, they are so in awe of the authority of Christ and so convinced that he's worthy of their trust. It says when they got to land, they left their boats and they followed him. They just walked away. They just said, we're done. Fishing life done. Well, what are you going to do for support yourselves? I don't know, but we got to follow him. Well, what about, what's your wife going to say? I don't know. we got to follow him. Well, that's going to mean your life's going to be crazy. That's okay. We met him. Uh, fishing? I don't want to fish anymore. I don't want to do it anymore. We have met Christ and, and you know what? I'm going to go tell my brother and my friend, and, and we're going to tell everybody, because this is Jesus. This is what we have seen, and he is able to do anything. They are so overwhelmed by their own inadequacy, but you're only overwhelmed by your own inadequacy when you understand the adequacy of God. 
You may come here this morning and you may feel completely inadequate spiritually, maybe that you're not saved or, or you're, not, you're not maturing, or maybe physically you feel inadequate, you've, you've got trauma or an illness in your life, or emotionally you're inadequate, you're struggling and you're anxious and you're worried and you're fearful, or, or maybe even relationally you're like, I don't fit in. We all have inadequacy. There's no question even right now as a church, we feel a little inadequate. We don't have the building, and, and we don't have an answer. We don't know what the option is. Listen, don't let the enemy lie and say your life is supposed to be inadequate. We are more than conquerors through Christ. My father said yesterday at the commencement address, I thought this was great. He said, fear restricts the arteries of the heart of faith. Isn't that good? I wish I said stuff that was that intelligent. Fear restricts the arteries of the heart of faith. William Borden was the son of the Borden family that does Borden Dairy and all that. You know that family. In 1904, William Borden was at Yale and his influence and his witness for Christ was so powerful that three-quarters of the Yale students were in a weekly Bible study. Can you imagine such a thing? William Borden felt a calling from the Lord, and he went to his parents who were very wealthy, and he said, I believe the Lord is calling me to go to Asia to witness the Muslims. And his parents looked at him and said, that's a complete waste of time. Borden went to Egypt, and he started to study the language because he wanted to be prepared to speak to people. And while he was there, he got very sick with an illness and died at the age of 32. As he was in the final days of his life, William Borden wrote in his Bible, no reserves, no retreat, no regret. I heard that story this week, and I thought about it, and I thought, you know what, I don't want to live my life in regret that I was not willing to venture into the deep. So often we stay on the shoreline of our faith because it's so much easier. It's familiar. We know what it is. We don't step out into holiness because it's easier to be here. And God is constantly saying, I'm done. He's constantly saying, go out into the deep because that's where I'll show you my power and my presence for your life. And the only answer that we have is, I will do what you say. God's calling us right now into the deep. And we've got to trust him for it.